I'm going to stop us because we, you know, we we were trying to sort of wriggle our way into that, but let's get into it for for real and for true, as if we were introducing it and doing a, hey, we've had a couple months off. Broadway's announced. We're going to open up on August 18th. I am taken aback, Jason, because I thought that was so spectacular. Oh. I can't believe you would want to go back and read. Your lightning doesn't strike twice, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) And lightning didn't strike at all, my friend. (laughs) It might not even strike once. There may be no lightning. It's really, really sunny where you are, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) The weather's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Not a cloud in the sky, so just sit and wait. Welcome to Cocktails at Table 7, Inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at table seven. We're back! Yay! Yay. Hooray! Here we are! We made it! Here we are! You missed us. You missed us. We know you missed us desperately. Oh. And we've missed you. We did. The outpouring of the people that won't stop saying, where are you? When are you coming back? What's happening? It's got to reach up to about four or five. <laughs> yes. And once that sixth person said it, we decided we had to come back. And so we're back. Here we are. Welcome back after our two-month hiatus. Mm. Hope you've enjoyed the first month or so of summer. I'm Sean Kent. I'm Dana Mirlock. I'm Jason Woodruff. And this is Cocktails at Table 7. Inside New York's Joe Allen. And speaking of being inside New York's Joe Allen. Yes. We have some exciting news to kick off this episode. Absolutely. Joe Allen will be reopening its doors on August 18th. Which is a Wednesday. Yay! We aren't clear yet as to when you can start making reservations. We are clear that the restaurant will be back. Getting ready to um, sync up with the opening of the theater in September. Back better than ever. Ready to go. Everybody's really looking forward to it. And the the other restaurants to follow. Exactly. Shortly after, once once everything gets gets really going. Yeah. So I think that's a cheers to that. So raise your glass. Cheers. 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 And today's guest is. A person who's also excited that the restaurant's opening again. Um, <laughs> uh, somebody that knows the restaurants, is a fixture on Broadway, television, movies. Podcasts. 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 Yes. And also uh, someone who we knew had a long history with not only the restaurants, but who knew Joe Allen pretty well and was friendly with Joe Allen. But her history goes back even further than we possibly could have known. I mean goes back to really the beginning of the place. We thought we knew. We always think we know more than we actually do. Yes. <laughs> we thought we knew. <laughs> and so so this was incredibly insightful because although we know her and we've always enjoyed having her in the restaurants, we sort of got a side of her reminiscing about memories I don't think she's talked about in a long time, connections to the restaurant, friends, 
her early days in show business and just her life in general and her memories of especially Barson Trolley, which is a very special place to her. And it was a real pleasure. We got to speak to Stalker Channing. If you haven't read the intro, it's Stalker Channing that we're talking about. Oh, we do sort of give it away in what we write, don't we? <laughs> I don't think anybody will be surprised. There's no surprise. <laughs> it is actually her. Um, I was surprised that just how loose and wonderful and funny this this turned out. It was really a pleasure. It was a great way to kick off our... We've decided this is season three, so it's our show. It's our choice, right? That's right. <laughs> We've decided it's it's season three. That's right. That's right. Well, there are four seasons in a year, so this makes sense that this would be our third season. That is true. It does make sense, Jason. It's okay. It makes sense. It makes sense, Jason. It's all right. It does. You're right. I didn't think of it that way. That's, that's a really good point. And this is why... We need Jason around. That's the only reason to remind us that there's four seasons. <laughs> the only reason. <laughs> no, I, I, you know what's funny about seasons is they always apply seasons to an entire year of a show. So, you know, I thought uh, three seasons, but it's true. Plus, it's, you know, we're going by that British model where it's 13 or less. And you're done. So yeah. the first time, well, the first round was 12, then the last was 13. And uh, we'll do... Uh, We'll be HBO. We'll do eight this time and call it and a day. Next time it'll be six and they're all going to suck. No, no, no. <laughs> right, right, right. That is kind of the trajectory, right? You really look forward to it. This round might be a little bit more HBO-ish in, you know, some of the stories that people have told us thus far. No, yes. We got, you know, I realize, yeah, this one and also. This is not for kids. This is not. not and a lot of times the E is because at the end we ask people their favorite curse word. They say a curse Yes. There's a couple this season. The E is there for a reason other than that. <laughs> not this one in particular. but Not this one in particular, but there's going to be some stories. And they're wonderful and they're everything that we hope for. And they're the kinds of things you would tell your friends when huddled around table seven enjoying your drinks. And to uh, that end, how about some Stalker Channing? <laughs> We all three have been uh, working at Joe Allen. We work at Orso. They've been up at Bar Centrale from time to time as well. So we, we see you in all three places. Exactly. <laughs> I cover the waterfront. I know. Yeah, it's, it's good. As long as it's in the complex, we're happy. I've been there almost from the beginning. Other than all the great work you've done, that's one of the major reasons why you've been on our shortlist from the beginning. My late partner and myself are even up on the wall in Barson. Yes, you are. That's a great picture, too. It's a very elegant picture. He was very close to Joe. I know, I know. We, when we talked to Mary, she was saying how, how she basically considered you and Dan, like, so central to the place in the, yeah. all along. But especially during the early time, it was like you kind of really made it a second home yeah. quickly. I know, definitely. It's so fascinating. But no, uh, but I first met Joe in like early 60s. Um, I was working in Boston and I think he must have just opened the joint. And Sunday after the matinee, uh, those of us, this is a long time ago and we were, I was, I was the youngest of the bunch. Yes, I was. <laughs> but we get in the car and drive to New York and go drinking. <laughs> that was it. And the first stop was Joe's because... My friend and mentor, the late Ralph Waite, was a great fan, a friend rather of his. And I that's when I first met him. So we're talking, could be the, the 70s, I, early 70s, you know, really early. 
And that's long before Orsos and obviously long before Bar Centrale. So that's when I first wow, met Joe. I think he's still. I mean, we assumed it was probably the, uh, the you know, the early 70s because that's when you started to, you know. Yeah, but you know, no, actually, I think it was late 60s because that was one of the, you know, it's hard to remember so long ago. But I remember um, going to Joe's and I, at those days, I literally I had this big Labrador and you could literally bring your dog in because he had his dog, which I believe was. He had a dog named Alice. Alice. Yeah. She was a golden retriever yeah, or yeah. a yellow lab. I always get this. The yellow lab. That was her picture. You know, the drawing on the wall. It's all a big, a big mush pile because that's the way life was. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other reasons why we wanted, we love to talk about this is it seems like as though we, we've always had so much fun working at the places. But it just seems like when you go back to the earlier times, it, there was something going on in New York. There was something going on in the theater and there was something happening in the neighborhood. Where so many people who are these formidable talents today got their start in that era. And you mentioned Ralph Waite. Do you know the the Ralph Waite quitting Joe Allen story? No. <laughs> oh, so so Ralph Waite, who was who was a very well known actor and who was best known probably for playing Walton. Grandpa Walton. Yeah. So Ralph Waite was a bartender at Joe Allen, and he got all of his calls at the bar uh, from his, or he would have to call his answering service, and he got a call back for the Waltons. And the story is, he was behind the bar in the middle of the shift, and he called. And he got the news that he was cast in the Waltons and he hung up the phone and he took off his apron and he leapt over the bar and he went home. And that was the last time. I think that's every bartender's dream, isn't it? <laughs> that was the last time that he ever worked a shift. He was out the door. Well, that was the reason that you went to Joe's when you were driving, you know, four hours from Boston uh, because you, it, they closed the joint and you drinking. I mean, as I said, I was a bit of a, you know, I, I was, I was probably in my early twenties when I first went there. And I remember, um, actually, uh, Ralph had an on and off girlfriend of which he had many who literally was renting Joe's flat. Oh, okay. I saw the flat before I saw the thing because she, uh, I don't know how pleased she was to see all of us. And I think we ended up going downtown and sleeping on Ralph's brother's floor. Cause that's the way it was in those days. Yeah. And I, I, I remember this wonderful, I mean, it was, this is foggy because I really was probably early 20s when I first saw it. But then it became in phases because when I moved back to New York, uh, you know, I remember there was Jimmy Ray's on the corner and that was cheaper. So if you kind of had a semi job, you'd go to Joe's because Jimmy's was cheaper. But um, but I do remember I didn't, you know, this is obviously between jobs. Ralph was a great off-Broadway actor and this, that and the other. And, um, you know, there was a whole pool of us. And that was it. But I was a bit of a, you know, a little pisher at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you're the second person to tell us that Jimmy Ray's was on the corner and was a little bit cheaper. And when you had a job, you went to Joe's. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Third, Jason. Oh, the third? I think so. Yeah. Because it was Mary Lou Hanner, Judy Kay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's three. Exactly. <laughs> and then when I was in the chorus of Two John of Verona, I remember a lot of people went there and um, and and you could order, literally you could order a baked potato. And that was the deal. Then you pile everything you could possibly imagine on that baked potato. So all you pay for was the baked potato. And then you'd order a glass of red wine and pour it ugh, over ice. Oh. <laughs> Drink of choice at Jimmy Ray's. God knows what that red wine was. <laughs> no, but that was keeping costs down. I understand that. It made it last longer if you watered it down a little. <laughs> oh, God. 
<laughs> Do you remember was Joe was Joe actively behind the bar during this era, or was he just kind of keeping an eye on the place? No, I remember, like you know, Joe as he'd slink in and out and he'd do that and the other and whatever. He would sit at the bar as he did even you know for years. He always, as I remember him sitting at the bar. I, I don't remember him sitting at the at table a lot. And you know, obviously in the latter years when in Centrale, which I frankly saw more of, I think I saw more of Joe just as a person, a friend when Centrale opened only because, as I said, he and Dan became very close. And uh, Dan being from San Francisco had that whole bar culture in his veins. It's like hanging out at a pub, this, that, and the other. And they became uh, tight early on. So if you remember, of course, at Centrale, he always was at the bar, occasionally on the side. And there was a bit of that, but it's, then of course, Orso's was a whole other world. Orso became the club, the, the restaurant of choice. It was a whole other world there's more there were the audience the audience would like go into joe's for a burger but then the sort of upper scale carriage trade audience would go into orthos right mm -hmm. and, yeah right does that make sense well i think it was more like the jewel box it was more sort of sceney yeah. in a way and you know and i had the charge account and all of that stuff you know which is i think long on but you know it was also being an actor you were always going from coast to coast back and forth this that and the other moving from place to place and it was just, uh, it was the grounding place. And what, whatever restaurant or place you were going to, whether it was Joe's or, or Orso or Centrale, it was depending on your mood, who you were with, all the rest of it. But it became really like the clubhouse. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who said this. I'm sure everyone has said this. Yeah, we've talked about it in different ways, but all sort of coming down to the same thing that you just said and talking about the community that has been created over the years. Um, a lot of our guests, we talked to them about their coming to New York story. You know, they when they got on the plane and wound up here. But you were born and raised here. Can you tell us, like, what was it like growing up in New York, in Manhattan? Did you see Broadway shows? Was acting a thing that you had in your sights at a young age? No, not at a young age at all. I was raised in a very conventional family sort of uh, Upper East Side kind of thing, you know what I mean? And um, my family would play show tunes on, you know, that was it. They'd be cocktail hour and they put on the LPs with the show tunes on them. <laughs> I, I don't think I saw a straight play until I was in my early 20s or something, because it was always musicals. It's a very, very conventional kind of stuff. So they were not terrifically pleased when I left that world. So, <laughs> you me in so many different worlds and so many different chapters in my life. I've lived um, all over the city with the exception of the Upper West Side. I've never lived there, but I've lived in the West Village. I've lived in the Garment District. You know, obviously, it's ever. I mean, it's, um, it's a place I always either come back to and sometimes I've been away for years. Do you have a favorite place in New York? Is there like one certain street that screams New York to you? 46th Street. 46th Street. Oh, <laughs> yeah. good answer. All right. <laughs> you uh, you went to Radcliffe. Yes. Were you a theater major there? Or was it something that... We uh, don't have that at Harvard. They just have... You do it when you're not learning. You're, you're playing and learning how to be an actor or something. Yeah, it's all extracurricular. How did you get involved in theater? I mean, was it was it something that you... Just thought, oh, I'll give this a try. I don't know. My, fresh, my freshman year, I tried to, whatever. I, I think I was in some little Sean O'Casey play, whatever. But there was a, a very talented young man at the time, now no longer with us, called Tim Mayer. And he and, and Tom Babe 
who then became a playwright as well, they, they were very, very creative. And I, forgive me, I've said this before, and there was also a great pool of talent in uh, Cambridge and Boston at the time. Um, John Lithgow was there and Tommy Lee Jones and Jimmy Woods and, and, there, and also a lot of musicians. And it was the sort of late sixties. And there was that whole thing of the light of the world sort of cracking open and the, the beginning of the rock musical, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. And then, so we all took full advantage of that. And um, that's really my, that was my drama school. That and the theater company of Boston, which when I was in with, there's with, with Ralph Waite, Paul Benedict directed me in something and doing sort of New York modern plays, fresh plays. So it was a real, real education. You know, one of the earliest memories that I have of seeing you is with Paul Benedict on Sesame Street. Oh, right, right, right. And I'm I'm wondering if you, do you have any memories of doing those little, the short films in the park? Sure, because Claudia Wilde directed them, wonderful director. And um, yeah, I remember them, you know, there was like three of them, I think. There was the numbers we had to act out. I can't remember what was the other title. Three. And it was four. Four with the umbrella. <laughs> Three was with sandwiches. Four was with an umbrella. And I don't remember the last one. But but what's interesting about those, and I don't know if you're aware of it, is that those were being repackaged in Sesame Street all the way up until maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So my 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 little my 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 little sister when she was a kid, she would watch it. And it was it was fun to see those videos because I remember them as a kid. And Paul Benedict actually uh he had an apartment across from Joe Allen. Uh, he would leave his keys with us when he went off to the coasts to do a show. And, uh, you know, he'd come back in and give him his keys and off he'd go. Yeah, yeah, he was a very close friend of mine. Became, but the first job I had professionally was at Theatre Company of Boston doing a Rosalind Drexler play. And he directed me in it. And we, we were friends for the rest of his life. He actually, when he would go, occasionally he would live in my little apartment in uh, LA. We always say we shared houses and, not, and he lived where I was. So he was very much a huge influence in me and a great friend. It's just nice that there seems like there was such a, uh, uh, we use this word a lot, but there was such a community that was built early on. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Theater Company of Boston is really an interesting joint because I was, you know, sort of starving ex-student in Cambridge. So I was a, a journeyman. I got my, my equity card through them and all of that. So like Ralph would wait, would, I mean, a lot of New York actors in those of 70s days, you know, and there was a lot of them. They all, you know, they made a living doing NYPD. What was that wonderful? Was it NYPD or was another, you know, it was a wonderful Naked City. Mm, yeah, in the 60s. Unbelievable numbers of, of actors became legendary. And they would often job into the theater company of Boston, in Boston, obviously. And, um, you know, I, I sort of had a couple of years where I was living there and I just get my, you know, jobs playing odd bits for them and this, that, and the other. And Benedict actually got me my first agent, Gene Guest and Phyllis Wender, who was Alan Arkin's agent at the time, this, that, and the other. And they took me on and that was my first agent, was my agent for many years. No, he was a true friend. It was a great time. Uh, you mentioned the first rock musicals. Do you have to tell us a little bit about Two Gentlemen of Verona, the musical? I mean, that sounds like it had to have been such a good time. Yeah, well, I um, they got me on board when it moved to Broadway. When Broadway. I was in the chorus and I was the understudy for Lucetta the Maid. And when um, the woman who was playing Julia uh, left, La Lupe, the great La Lupe left, um, when they were in preview, Diana Davila, who was standby, took over for her. And so the job of standby, who who was a um, Hispanic person who, when upset, burst into her native tongue, 
which was Spanish. And I had was now I had not planned to stay in the course forever, but uh, and I'd lost this job I was going to get, and this is a checkoff play. And I was very depressed. And I said to myself, "Just you've got to take an action." And I said, "What the fuck? I'm going to audition." And I think they thought it was so hysterical that someone like me would be auditioning. I don't know why they gave me the part. <laughs> and the audition thing, I had a roommate from Venezuela who taught me a little Venezuelan folk song called Chowi, you know, and I did it for them thinking, and they, I'm sure they gave me, you know, those are the days uh, it, everything goes when the whistle blows. I'm sure they never thought I'd ever go on. But Diana was kind enough to get a cold one day. Uh, and <laughs> she never said, you know, Stucker, you said, you, want to, you like to go on? And I said, uh, uh, well, sure. She said, I have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> And she did. She 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 let me go on. And then I got the part of her standby. And then I went on for her. And then I went to L.A. and uh, San Francisco first, then L.A. and uh, started my entire career. That's fantastic. Had you studied singing or? No, I've never studied anything ever. <laughs> ever, 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 nothing to do with theater. I was just this bookish nerd, and that was what I studied. I've never been to drama school or whatever. You know, I just, I'd wing it, I'd fake it, I'd fake it, I'd wing it, and sometimes I got caught, you know. But uh, no, but of course, you know, when I, my first, the first part I ever had that really knocked me out was in, in Cambridge, and I did Three Penny Opera, directed by Tim Mayer. And, um, that's when I was hooked. I was hooked. I played Jenny Diver and that was it. I think I was about 19. I'm not sure. And uh, that just, you know, kicked me out of the ballpark. That was it. Wow. I mean, the variety, like there's Broadway shows that you went into that I didn't know you went into or that you were a part of. Like the rink? <laughs> well, not just the rink, but also they're playing our song and they're, they're, they're these. Yeah. yeah. But the rink I was going to, we were definitely going to ask you about because that is like a, a quite a daunting task to go in and replace Liza Minnelli. It was, it was, it was. And she left early. <laughs> Thank you, Liza. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I had to go on like a week early. And I was only did it for two weeks because unfortunately it was a sinking ship, but it was one of the great two weeks of my life. I met Cheetah. I worked with Cheetah. I loved her. We love each other to this day. And the, the guys, I had the best time in that show. I loved it. But it replaced someone in August. And this one being Liza Minnelli. And there have been issues before, you know, maybe it was naive of me to think I was going to be in it longer than two weeks. I never even got a chance to be reviewed. I remember that. And also I had to go in early and it was nerve wracking, but it was fabulous. It was a fabulous experience. Were you ready to dive in a week early? Yeah, I had a lot of time. And the guy who put me in the show, I think was Caesar. I don't think he actually was dead. He couldn't have been dance captain because he wasn't performing with Rob Marshall. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Set <laughs> up in the balcony, obviously, and watch, you know, because I had to watch the show all the time. He was absolutely great. And uh, they were, everybody connected was so positive and supportive and this, that, and the other. So I had a lot of time to prepare, but you know how it is. It's, it's like, well, I didn't, but I literally had to go in a week early. That's a whole other thing because it's all very well to have five weeks to prepare, but really you're, when you think you have two weeks and you only have one week, 
before you actually get in front of an audience and the audience is really not happy to see you. <laughs> they're, they're there to see Lhasa. But, you know, it really worked out and I was really proud of it. Well, there was a very nice interview with Liz Smith that Cheetah Rivera did when you went into the show. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. No. But she says it's unusual to look up and see that your child has changed. <laughs> but um, it, she says, I'm so happy to have her. And she's like, she felt, she said she fell in love with you immediately and felt the same bond. And yeah, we really she did. said it was a fantastic experience for her as well. So I know it, we, I was so heartbroken when that closed. Yeah. It was a lot of, of immediate bonding with the, me and the rest of the guys and all that stuff and a lot of jokes. And it, it was great. And obviously I'd been around backstage, you know, I mean, I sort of knew them because you don't airlift into production. So I was rehearsing this, that, and the other, I said, to know people, whatever. But, you know, uh, Cheetah was, that was great. And and the guys, it was a wonderful company. And Terrence was an old friend of mine even then. So there you go. So they're playing our song, The Ring. Is there a favorite song that you, when you were doing those shows, you just loved to sing every night? I mean, there's so many good ones. I have to say, when I did Pal Joey, I loved doing Bewitched. I mean, mm. that was daunting because, you know, every great person in the world has sung that song. But that was, you know, it was interesting. And um and Gemignani was, you know, this wonderful man, and he put me in that. And I believe he also in the rink. So I mean, it was just it was a it was a, for somebody who wasn't a trained, really wasn't a trained person. I now realize, uh, not a trained actor, not a trained singer. You know, to to meet those challenges, well, it was great. Yeah, yeah. I want to skip to this just because I we saw this last night. Do you remember being on the Merv Griffin show for when you went into? They're playing our song. I was. Oh, yeah, you were. And your dog. Really good. (laughs) And your dog, Bear, was on the stage with you, came on stage with you. And do you remember who else was with you? Shit, this is embarrassing. Who? Ethel Merman. Really? Yes. You saw it? So you're coming out. You had just come. It was between the first and second season of your show. And you had taken the summer to come do They're Playing Our Song. That's true. And you arrived and you were talking about how your house had been hit by an avalanche in California. Uh, the floods. Floods, yes. A flood. I'm sorry, I didn't understand. If you said the- <laughs> California. Like, I didn't know what it was. So we the, called that not Switzerland. It's California. It was, a, it was a flood. Okay. Well, you said your husband looked out and the hills were coming towards you or something. I was confused. You know- the mud? Yes. The mud? Got it. Got it. Okay. So you came out and then your dog came out. But um, Ethel Merman stayed because you were coming out. And she said that she was a big admirer of yours and she wanted to stay for you. Oh, my God. I can't believe that because I think I was probably so terrified. But actually, when I said earlier about growing up, all of Ethel Merman's happy hunting. I know every word to happy hunting, one of her least favorite experiences. Mm-hmm. My family like, would play, you know, Gentleman for Her Blondes, all those kind of Broadway shows. But I am a person who actually knows every lyric to Happy Hunting. Wow, that's something. That's you can, Not everyone can say that. I'm the only person. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really cool thing to watch. And it, we were all talking, Dana, you said the same thing. as like, I remember being a kid and seeing on Merv Griffin, he would have Broadway people all the time. And he was such an advocate for Broadway. And it was sort of like, it just was very comforting. I think Rosie was doing that too on her show. She she was such an advocate for Broadway. Yeah, oh, absolutely. She was a massive, massive supporter of uh, Broadway. Yeah. Uh, we've been watching some of your films. Of course, we all watched uh, Six Degrees of Separation in the past couple of days. And you did that on Broadway and then you moved it to the film. There's the monologue at the end. Phone call? You're talking about the phone call? Yeah. The phone call, but then at the dinner party. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's right. Because in the film version, it's chopped up and moved around. You probably know it's, it's every word is intact in the film version, except 
if they're in different places a lot of yeah but it was just such a pleasure to see a show that was or see a movie excuse me that was just all about dialogue you know it was all about talking and being there and that last monologue at the dinner party is so devastating and so precise and so compact I read today that a young man committed suicide in Rikers Island prison and tied a shirt around his neck and hanged himself. Was it the pink shirt? A burst of color. Pink shirt. Was it Paul? We never did find out who he was. Why does it mean so much to you? He wanted to be us. Everything we are in the world, this paltry thing, our life, he wanted it. He stabbed himself to get into our lives. He envied us. We're not enough to be envied. Like the paper said, we do have hearts. Having a heart is not the point. We were hardly taken in. We believed him for a few hours. <laughs> he did more for us in a few hours than our children ever did. And he wanted to be your child. Don't let that go. When he sat out in that park, and said, that man is my father. He's in trouble, and we don't know how to help him. Help him? My God, we could have been killed, throat slashed. You were attracted to him. Oh, please, cut me out of that pathology right now. Attracted by his youth, his talent, and the embarrassing prospect of being in the movie version of Cats. That, yes. <laughs> Did you put that in your Times piece? And we turn him into an anecdote to dine out on like we're doing right now. But it was an experience. I will not turn him into an anecdote. How do we keep what happens to us? How do we fit it into life without turning it into an anecdote? With no teeth and a punchline you'll mouth over and over years to come. Oh, that reminds me of the time that imposter came into our lives. Oh, tell the one about that boy. And we become these human jukeboxes, spilling out these anecdotes, but it was an experience. How do we keep the experience? And I am a collage of unaccounted for brush strokes. I am all random. Excuse me. Those words must have been wonderful to say on stage or that moment to play yeah i mean on stage it was to plan it was to the husband it was you know not turn him into an anecdote and all that it was um it was uh, between you know these two people as i said so when it was i sort of moved around the way it was for the film it was a, a challenge to do it but we did it uh and it makes sense to me because obviously an anecdote is something you tell to other people uh but um yeah that that was uh that was an extraordinary experience, both on film and on stage. And I did it here in London as well. And John uh, won an Olivier Award for it. So. You've done these incredible roles. Is is Weeza the one that you sort of enjoy the most? Or are there other parts that you... I think Weeza, I have such a soft spot for, for so many reasons. First of all, working when you're, with one of your closest friends and having a great success with one of your closest friends. So over the course of four years, I did it. New York. I went back to do it in New York. And, you know, it was such a joyous and transformative experience for me, for John, for everybody from Lincoln Center. It was his massive hit. And then to do it in London and then be able to do the film and have a great 
experience in that. It was absolutely intriguing, joyful. It was everything. It was literally four years. That's like going to college. Yeah, you were sort of marinating in that part for all that time in different ways. Yeah, I know. And it was always fresh and always, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful life experience. Yeah, You know, it's funny. Um, although it's very much of a specific time and of a specific class, it's really relevant to the way people are divided by money and class and opportunity. And I found it watching the movie the other day. I was surprisingly moved by it because it's so witty and literate. And yeah. But then in the last half hour, it sort of lands on you what what all of this is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just about connection, healing. I mean, she and Paul, they they connect. That mysterious thing in life where two human beings connect. We enforced or only connect. And when that happens, it's I think it's um it's a uh, it, it has a, a bit of Howard's end, and I guess then the inheritance. You know, what I mean, there's a strain of that w- running through. Yeah, I see what you mean. I didn't think of that, but I do see exactly what you mean. Yeah. So I, I think the one thing that we wanted to um, we wanted to talk about um, <laughs> one of the many things. One of the many things. Your, your first major film was The Fortune. That was your first like large leading role with the premier director. Yes. And the two biggest movie stars. Of that time, and as I think about it, pretty much of all time. I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> and those three, as a director, Mike Nichols and Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty, uh, are still huge now. So what, how did that, I mean, what, how did that come about? It's so terrifying. It is so terrifying. <laughs> I totally believe you. Yeah. Uh, I was um, in Los Angeles. And my boyfriend was in a play and we were staying at the Marmot where, where you could stay in those days. And it was a cheap place. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, anyway, and Carol Eastman, who wrote the, the film, was has a, had a permanent apartment on like the ground floor. And my agent time said they, they're looking for someone to play this part. They know what they're doing, this and the other. So why don't you come in and, you know, read. They want someone to read this part with Jack and Warren and I met Mike and he said, well, we're having this little thing on Saturday and could you, uh, you know, just, it was like, I, they didn't know who I was, it's that and the other, I wasn't anybody. And, um, and I said, sure. I mean, like, literally we want to hear it. Carol doesn't want to play, read the part because she wants to hear it, that kind of thing. So it was this rainy Saturday in LA in so January or something. And um, they wouldn't send me the script because it was also hush hush. So I literally, it was pushed under my door about an hour before I had to go down. There was not even a chance to finish it. And I got in the elevator and I went down. And um, this is going to be a very long answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's a good one. So I walked in and there was Mike, who I'd already met. And there was Jack, who I believed was wearing a mink-lined denim jacket and shade. <laughs> there was Warren Baby in those, because it was the 70s where those tight, you know, those uh, velvet pants that sort of flare from yeah. the hip bone, that kind of thing. And that wonderful tousled hair, probably also wearing shades. You know, everyone but me was hungover. And I just had, I was so terrified. I didn't say a word. And I remember the first line of the script at that time, which was altered, was Freddie enters crying hysterically. And I remember just going into the, the bathroom flat. And I hadn't said, I literally said the words. Like, oh, my dear, thank you. And I turned around three times in front of the bathroom mirror. I just said, you can do this. You can do this. 
And I went, I sat down where my little chair and they, Jack and Warren had this little scene and Mike had said to me, you know, they're not going to act at all. They're not going to act. So it's really up to you. And he, I think he was thought it was kind of funny and puckish, you know, and for me, this was a chance of a lifetime. And I sat in that chair and it was like, it was like making a broad jump from a standing position. I just opened my mouth and let her rip. And, and I was crying hysterically. And I, I think that the guys just like leapt off the couch because they was like, who is this person? It was as if the chair was talking, you know what I mean? It was as if this chair had suddenly burst into song. And I just went from there. And then Jack just picked it up and started moving. And Warren jumped on. And, you know, we read through the whole thing. And they turned to me and they said, where do you come from? <laughs> and I said, the fourth floor. <laughs> and so I said, and they said, well, you know, it's going to be, I don't believe I had the balls to say this. They said, well, it's going to be pretty hard to hear anyone else read this part. And I said, that's the general idea. <laughs> wow. Perfect. You had all the right answers. You had two great answers. Perfect. I know. And I was, but I was shaking the way I, I remember it. Sitting here, London, million years later, I'm shaking. Anyway, they clearly had to all talk amongst themselves because I was, you know, Kelly girl. I was literally, they didn't have any idea. So I got in the elevator, went up to the fourth floor and just lay down on the floor and did a snowing <laughs> on the carpet of the Chateau Marmont. That's great, though. But I, that you really gave it your best shot. I mean, that's... I gave it my best shot. And I had to wait till June. And I would hear about every person in the world auditioning for it, this, that, and the other. And then I got the call and I had my screen test in June. And I got it. It was a just... The greatest, it was a great, great feeling. It's one of the great moments of my life. And the experience of shooting with those guys, was it, I mean, was it, I mean, when you got there, you got the job, that's the scary part, but then to do it. Yeah, yeah. It was also, you know, um, it was, a, I'd never really been to LA before. You know, I didn't know what to wear. I didn't know what to live. I didn't what I was doing. And they were, you know, these are like the party animals of all time. And I think I later said this, which is, and I'd say this with love and gratitude because I mean, they had to, you know, sign off on me. They had to, they watched the screen test. I think they were in Cannes when they did that and they, they gave me the job. They said uh, this totally unknown, totally, totally unknown person. And that was, you know, I'm forever grateful. And then you go up and, the, and you know, you do the work that was, we were all on the level, but I have to say, they would, there's a lot of car scenes, the things I've seen, and they would talk about what they had done the night before, let's put it this way. Uh, you know what I mean? And they were very close friends. I don't want to go into any detail. But, <laughs> I can imagine, uh, yeah. No, it wasn't exactly PC. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. And I think they kind of knew they were baiting, you know, because I just sit there and go, you know, and of course the mics were on and the sound mineral. It was, yeah, it was the... Uh, it was an education. <laughs> it was, it was. But you know, look, what the hell? There I am, forever grateful to both of them, the three of them. But Mike was great and he was brilliant and uh, there we go. And then the movie was a flop. <laughs> but it doesn't, but, but then you worked from that point forward. It was like one thing after another. And I have to say it was, you know, it was a, it was a big old little part and never, we were all just actors together when, when the work was happening. You know, it was sort of being tuning into a soap opera you've never watched before because I had no idea of the cast of characters they'd be talking about. You know, oh, 
Evans's the night before and this, that, and the other, you know, and uh, I just was a child in the garden. I had no idea. <laughs> I can only, I can only imagine. Yeah. I just, uh, let's see. I'm sure we can't repeat a single thing. Any of those guys ever said, I think, uh, Jack had either just finished or I, I think just finished Chinatown and shampoo had just come out. So well, how about that? They were at the peak. I mean, the peak of the peak. So we were going through, you know, your list of credits and we were talking about all of our favorite things that you have done. And so we thought maybe we'd share some of our favorites and you could tell us some of your favorites, Jason. Well, I, I saw this movie probably three or four times when I was a kid. I bet I know what it is. What is it? The girl most likely to. No. Oh. It is the fish that saved no. Pittsburgh. No. Yes. I, that, that nightmare. Anyone <laughs> <laughs> saw that movie? Yes, he did. I saw uh, I saw that movie three or four times as a kid, and I watched it this morning as well. Oh, no. I don't know. I grew up in Indiana. We played basketball. And so I got it. Yeah, it it is like the astrology disco basketball movie from 1979 with Dr. J and Meadowlark Limmert, who was a Harlem Globetrotter. I I don't think I ever saw it. I just I mean, it was just one of the weirdest things. Yeah, it's a very bizarre, very sort of, uh, you know, you have this kid walking down the street past all these porn theaters to come to the astrologist's office. And, you know, and I only saw the trailer, Jason, and I can't (laughs) believe this. But yeah, and you've got your own disco song or the character has its own disco song in it. And uh, (laughs) so that was that was absolutely one of my favorites in a nostalgic sort of way. The movie, eh, not so great, it it turns out, but fun to go back and watch that. (laughs) How about you, Dana? Well, I am a huge fan of The West Wing. I've seen every episode probably at least two to three times. And then I watched you on The Good Wife. I loved you as Juliana Margulies' mom. And one of my favorite things to watch, especially when I need a a little pick-me-up of fun and magic is Practical Magic. I know. A lot of people love that movie. I think that's so great. I just adore it. I mean, I know that magic is in the title, but there is. It's just this romantic, magical, female-centric, too. It's... I was that kind of was that fun as fun to make as it is to to watch. <laughs> yes, I mean wonderful, wonderful people have happened to be women in it, you know. And Griffin is just fabulous, wonderful, wonderful guy, talented and divine. And you know there was that, but and uh, and Sandy and Nick are just were just great. Uh, someone said, "Oh, it was a chick flick," and I said, "I don't know what it was. It's just a unusual one-off, sui generis kind of movie. I don't know." Um, and it was great fun to do it and. It was crazy to leap into this weird witch thing. And I, rem- I remember particularly the makeup. We had a, a makeup test and they couldn't figure out my makeup. And because in, as, in the theater, I always done my own makeup. And I worked with the makeup guy who Diane had brought in, actually. And we knew each other from years ago and something. He was a wonderful guy. And it was his last movie. He was going to retire. And um, but we had a great rapport. And so I just so we went for this thing, which I would end up I, I had like black lipstick on and this, that and the other because it was like ballet makeup. Do you know what I mean? Because we were struggling with the thing of, it's almost supposed to be like 500 years old. What do you, you know, but not old crusty bits falling off. You know, so remember it was a, every day I would arrive and Juliana McCloskey did the clothes and she had done six degrees, I knew her. So to make up these characters that were timeless. So that's that my favorite thing about it was to show up in the set and we'd figure out what crazy 
look we were going to do that day. And it was just a pleasure, but everybody on it. Um, and as a Margot Martindale, I first met her, she's a little close friend of mine. And, and I, it was, a, it was a great spirit. And my very, one of my best friends was the producer on it. And it was, it was a very joyful, it was a very joyful time. That's nice to know. It's nice to hear that something that gives that out to the world really was that experience. Cause sometimes you hear, you know, horror stories about these movies that you find joy in. So that's, that's really great. And then of course, you know, I couldn't be a kid of the eighties. <laughs> if my, one of my favorite things of all time was, are you, are you, Dana, are you going to say the big bus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Cause that's a funny movie. It is. It is. Well, I have to hear it. That was, that was tough to, to make with, uh, there was tanks involved and stuff, but I don't know. It was a little, little wayward. It's pretty funny. It's actually a lot like a, a, a it's a very accurate disaster movie parody. Well, that's what it was obviously supposed to be. It was a satire on those. But it's got some very funny people in it. Oh, it's great people in it. It's got great people and great bits, and um, and and it also, it also has um, uh, a nuclear bus. <laughs> Every movie needs one of those. <laughs> no, it's just a time capsule. It's great, but I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was I was saying, and of course, you know, there's Greece. We we can't forget Greece. <laughs> I mean, what is it like to be in a movie that's just? I just had a job for this. I was happy to get it. That's it. That was my experience at, at that time. You know, it was incredibly well protected in terms of who was shooting it and the studio loved it and this and that. And they were, you know, it was, they took their time, the wonderful Pat Birch, you know, uh, musical numbers and all of that. I mean, it was very high quality, but I don't think anybody had any idea though. And Alan, you know, was a genius at marketing and selling it and all that rest. But because of the technology involved of just remember VCR and all of that, that was the brilliant moment. So it, it lived and lived and lived and lived. It was, I think, pretty hot coming out of the gate in that summer. I remember uh, I would go to various, you know, cities all over the world. They fly, you know, PR stuff for openings. You could feel that uh, excitement in an audience, but the critics hated it. They just hated it. It's probably, we were thinking, in the top five of the most watched movies of all time. All time. <laughs> yes, it is. And it's everywhere all the time and everyone knows it. And you, you have to realize that at this moment, there's hundreds of teenage character actresses that are copying everything that you did yep. on a high school <laughs> stage or virtually right now. But everybody wanted to be Rizzo. And especially when I was doing theater theater, the kids around me, all the girls wanted to be Rizzo. But a lot of the boys wanted to be Rizzo. <laughs> <laughs> and were. But it must be incredible to be part of something that is literally timeless. Now I, now I think it's fabulous. I went through some changes afterwards because it was really hard to be taken seriously as an actor. Oh, well, sure. I made a shitload of money. That, at those days, that really wasn't as important as it is now. I didn't get mad at it. I just thought it was hard to be taken seriously. And then, um, so I went back uh, to the stage and I did, um, it went back East and started over in effect because, uh, and that was also after my television show, uh, you know, tanked. I mean, it was canceled for two years. So I just started over and that's why I came back into Joe Egg, um, et cetera, you know. But so, so it was a part of a chapter, but now I have to say, I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of her. I love her. I love her. Mm. <laughs> love her. <laughs> and uh, for all I know, I'm probably more like Rizzo than I ever realized. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's a hero. She's an absolute hero to millions and millions of people. Yeah, I do. She moves me. 
She moves me. I think we just have one more thing to do, Dana. Well, actually, we didn't even mention that you have your Tony Award for Joe Egg. So, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> you said that was your. You came back east after Greece, and then you did Joe Egg, and you won a Tony. So, mission accomplished. Yeah, exactly. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. But we like to round out the show with our last call questionnaire that we've based off of the Proust questionnaire and James Lipton's actor studio questionnaire, but we've Joe Allen did up. It's about eight questions, you know, kind of the first thing that pops into your head. Cool. But I'm going to answer the first question for you and tell me if I get it right. What's your drink at the Joe Allen restaurants? Uh, a vodka martini straight up with olives? Yep, kettle on. Kettle on. Very good, Jason. Ice on the side. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I wanted to be a designer, dress designer, when I was a kid. Yeah. What live performance that you've seen floored you the most? Well, actually, I'm going to tell you a story that not many people are aware of. When I was in um, high school, my dad came into town and he took me to a Broadway show. And I saw this woman who ended up being one of my closest friends in, in life. And uh, it was a, a newspaper strike on the time, so it didn't last very long. And her name was Elaine Stritch. Oh, mm. wow. I saw her in Golden Rocks. And, um, and we became very, very, extremely very close friends in the last like 10 years of her life. And we ended up working together and, uh, and rediscovering you know, each other's friends is that the other. And, um, so uh, that's a great answer. I mean, there's this little 15 year old kid raised on the Upper East Side. And I also know every word, the Goldilocks. <laughs> and happy hunting. Goldilocks and happy hunting. <laughs> what is your most treasured possession? A dog. Dog? Oh, <laughs> yes. Because that's the one thing I brought with me to London. <laughs> What's your favorite dish at the Joe Allen restaurants? The chicken at Orso's. The chicken at Orso's. Then the oven broke, and the, where did that chicken go? I don't know, you know, all of that. So I just thought maybe that maybe I should have known then that the, the end. No, no. When <laughs> when when everything reopens, when we reopen, we will have our grill, and we will be able to make that again. The roast chicken is so good, right? And I'm not the only one. Oh no. Uh, next question is: What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. Okay, that's very popular. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's original with me. Is there a male role that you would love to play? Huh. I don't think that way. I, you know, as my dear friend Frank Langella said, when, who for, and who with. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and I, so I, I can't take that as uh, my own little perception, but it really, it's all about the production. It's all about where, when, who with, and who you're doing it for, it's all about that. So it's about a production. So I don't, I've never been a very good initiator of stuff, you know what I mean? Um, I don't think that way. Um, but uh, yeah, that's my answer. Love that. And lastly, pick one word to describe how you feel about Joe Allen, the establishments. Home. Yeah, really. We agree, we feel the same way. We look forward to being back and having you back and having other people back. Yeah, we're looking uh, forward to getting back to work. Yes. Uh, you know, it's been a nice break, but we're going crazy. Do we know how to do this? <laughs> <laughs> I think we know how to do this. Well, well, we could we could start with this. We like to close with a toast. I think we remember how to do that. So let's raise a glass to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at Table 7. Cheers. Cheers. much fun.
Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.